fail fast, fail better, fail as quick as you can, because you can get up and shake off and do the next thing. Uh, failing slow is miserable. Welcome to the Small Business Celebration Podcast, where we interview successful small business owners as we guide you to a strong and profitable business. Today, our guest is David Malazzo of Macroscopic, an Apple products consulting firm, where we will learn the value of listening to your customers, how to control the expansion of your business in this rapidly growing economy, and how to keep your business from overwhelming your life. But before we get into this wide-ranging interview, Let's hear a quick message from our sponsors. Tim McNeely with Lifestone Wealth Management understands that most entrepreneurs like you simply want to make a difference in the lives of the people they love and the causes they care about. In order to do that, you need assistance in solving all of your unique financial needs. The problem is your current financial advisor, wants to talk about what a great job they are doing managing your investment portfolio, and that can leave you feeling frustrated and misunderstood. Tim believes you deserve financial advice that moves beyond your portfolio. Tim understands that you need advice on minimizing taxes, taking care of the next generation, and protecting your hard-earned assets, all while supporting the causes you are passionate about. That is why, for the last 20 years, Tim has focused on providing advice beyond investments. Here's how it works. First, you and Tim meet and he learns what really matters to you. Then, Tim presents a plan for moving forward, making real progress towards achieving your most important goals. To get started, contact Tim at lifestonewm.com. That's lifestonewm.com and start making a difference in the lives of the people you love and the causes you care about. Fellow small business owners, let me ask you something. Can your employees explain your business to their loved ones in one sentence or less? Now, imagine your customers and clients and how they feel. Small Business Celebration guides small business owners like yourself to a strong and successful business through coaching and customized workshops. Small Business Celebration can guide you and your business through a seven-step process to clarify your message, a message that will be effective in your elevator pitch, your marketing, and be memorable to your customers and clients. If you want to clarify your message, increase your business presence, and become memorable in your marketing material, join us at smallbusinesscelebration.com. Clarify your message. Be memorable. Go to smallbusinesscelebration.com today. Welcome, successful business owners. My name is Michael Roberts, your host today. Our guest for today is David Malazzo, the owner of Macroscopic here in Bakersfield. You can find him at macroscopic.net. That's macroscopic.net. And he owns a boutique Apple Enterprise Technology Consultancy with a passion for perfection. Now, I love this because it's one sentence and it describes precisely what it is that you do. And without going into too much egghead detail, go ahead and elaborate a little bit about what your business is and what it does. Yeah, well, thanks, Michael. I really appreciate you inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Uh, macroscopic, there's two ways to talk about it. One is for the layperson, one's for the geek. Mm -hmm. For the layperson, uh, I'm going to assist in solving Apple-centric 
technology problems or building brand new Apple-centric technology solutions that fix problems in your business. And for some people, that's as far as we need to talk about it. They don't care anything else. <laughs> now, other people want to talk about, well, how are you going to do that? What are you going to use? Well, I'm going to use a collection of different types of technology. Certainly, I'm kind of an Apple-first shop. Sure. So we'll use Mac OS, iOS, which is iPhones and iPads, uh, watches with watchOS, and even TVs uh, with Apple TV product for conference rooms. And we'll put those products into a collection along with maybe some network hardware and maybe some cloud services and stitch together kind of an end-to-end -end solution for customers that um, solve a challenge, be it data collection from the field or printing large banners. I mean, it can be anything. And when you say business challenges and you're just talking about banners and that sort of thing, who is your target customer? You know, that's a great question. It has been morphing uh, since I got into this business in the late 90s. It started off uh, Apple techs like myself, Mac geeks. We were working at ad agencies and design firms. And we were dealing with Quark and uh, PageMaker and kind of all these pre-press. That's <laughs> sure. where it all started. And over time, uh, we've seen that every single industry has adopted Apple Tech in, in some fashion. So um, our target customer used to be designers. Now it's anybody. And that makes it challenging to know who to market to and, and who is going to be a great fit uh, for, uh, for our customer. Well, and the the point that you just brought up, that Apple Tech is everywhere, one of my favorite sushi restaurants here in Bakersfield, the entire cashier system and the way they take money, they take credit cards, is all Apple-related. And, right. it's, and it's all wireless, and it's all served right there at your table, and it's very efficient and very elegant. It's and not like the good old days of where you had to find the register or, or give all the old cash that way. Exactly. The, I always come back to elegant because that's, that's something that I want in a solution, be it one that I buy for my own company or, or personally. And, and Apple kind of owns that edge of technology space, that clean, elegant event where it doesn't feel like you've scotch taped and bubble gummed three things together to, to make it work. It doesn't feel crafted in, in a um, uh, backroom kind of way. It feels polished. There's a there's a sheen to it, and, uh, and that's kind of what I love to, to see. You had mentioned that you started this in the late 90s, and, and from the research I did, you've been in business for 21 years. Congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. Most, as we know, most businesses fail within the first five, so the fact that you've been able to do it for 21 is, is a testimony to your success alone. And the question I had is when you have is when you started this business, you were dealing with mostly artists. And as the Apple experience grew globally, not just uh, locally, how did your business plan change from going straight from d designers to what you're working with today? It happened really gradually. I honestly didn't even notice. Mm. Uh, I'd onboard, you know, I've got three ad agencies and two or three designers. And uh, next thing you know, I add a manufacturer and agricultural client. And before long, then there's a, a medical office. And without even really noticing it, I went from doing font management. I can't tell you, Michael, how many <laughs> font problems I solved for about a decade. Just nothing but thousand fonts here and co font conflicts and corrupted. Anyway, it just one day I kind of looked at myself and I thought, wow, it's been how long has it been since I've touched a font? Oh, my gosh. So it just kind of <laughs> happened without me even thinking about it. The, the business morphed, and, you know, it's technology. There's always something new, so you're slowly looking at where that puck is moving to and trying to skate there. Um, 
one major element that changed the game, I think, is the iPhone, mm, mm-hmm. because that phone got in the hands of the C-suite, the right. CEOs, and they said, I want this to work. IT be damned, this device is going to work in my office. Right. And that shifted everything. And um, it also put CEOs, it gave them the knowledge of what was possible. Right. What does an elegant solution look like? They have an app on their phone that, that does a couple of things, and they go, my gosh, I want a, a process like that. Who can make a process like that for me? And then they, <laughs> they go looking, and hopefully I, uh, I pop up. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned is the iPhone going into the C-suites. And, but one of the things that this also did was it leveled the playing field in technology. No longer did, you, did the small business owner have to hire some big engineering firm to come in and design their, their simple accounting software system to make it work. Now this, uh, this was readily available at your fingertips, literally in your iPhone. Mm-hmm. How has your business changed as the technology leveled the playing field? Well, there's an expectation now for a great solution. Mm-hmm. They're used to seeing them, so they expect that they're everywhere. And they're not everywhere, unfortunately, not yet. But the expectation is now there, um, which is good because it buys you some time to maybe find it or build it. Well, let me go ahead and sh- take a slight shift a little bit. And why did you get started in this business in the first place? Randomly. This okay. was not a plan at all. <laughs> I was an actor for many years. Okay. Um, I studied theater and went to CSU Bakersfield. Okay. And then I moved to New York to uh, pursue graduate work in film and improvisation and all this sort of thing. And instead of waiting tables like all my buddies, I had been working at my dad's architectural firm as a kid, fixing mm-hmm. his Macs. And I thought, you know, I, I might be able to do this and might make a few more bucks than my buddies, you know, busting their butts at, at these restaurants. Sure. And... Uh, so I got out the Yellow Pages, and I called the first, the first big Mac consulting ad that I found for Maximize Consulting. And a guy by the name of David Sternlicht answered the phone and asked me a couple questions and seemed like I knew enough that I could answer his questions. He's like, all right, I've got an emergency. Uh, can you go today? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so um, I began my business randomly on some Thursday because I called a guy, and he sent me on a gig, and I handled it. And uh, I think I screwed up the next two pretty pretty terribly. But by the fourth one, I, I got my, uh, my sprint and uh, he became a mentor to me. And I worked for him all through grad school and, and then uh, slowly transitioned out of his clients into my own and uh, still keep up with them to this day. When you transitioned onto your own, what was that aha moment that you had knowing that, okay, this is it. This is, this is what I want to do, not what I have to do. Right. This is what I want to do. I was on the floor of the New Actors Workshop um, acting studio, mm-hmm. uh, laying on my back, feet on the floor, my pelvis in the air, and I was shaking my pelvis, which is uh, not in an Elvis way, but more in a way to like loosen uh, the body for a scene I was about to be doing. Sure. And the, the room of us were doing it. There's 25 of us. And I looked around, all of us there shaking our pelvises in the air, and I thought, you know what? <laughs> I think I'm ready for a job. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm ready to move to, to the next level. As, not, as much as I, I loved my, my time in, in the theater, uh, and every now and then I dip back in, I don't know. I, when the phone would ring and it was consulting work, there was a level of, uh, well, payment. You know, right, I right. got paid. Money's and, and good. Money's, <laughs> money's kind of nice. You know, in the realms of theater, whenever the phone would ring for a new acting uh, you know, opportunity, usually it's, can you bring 200 bucks because we're all going to share the cost of the space. Right. Yeah, we all could work and we could right. find something to do. And it was very creatively um, 
you know, uh, promising and lucrative in, in the creative space. But as far as financially, it was, it was dicey. So I got a taste of, you know, a little bit of money in the big city, and that was fun. And honestly, I loved the work. Mm-hmm. I had always, even from a, from a young kid at eight when I got my first Apple II Plus, I just loved trying to figure out how the thing worked. And as much as I love theater and a, and a life in the arts, uh, this was clear to me that I, I saw a beginning, middle, and an end approach, even though the end was completely different than as it is now. Sure. But I, th- I thought I saw an end. Sure. Um, but I, I've really never looked back. I'm, for about 10 years, I thought this was temporary. Hmm. I kept waiting. Okay, well, I'm soon I'm going to stop doing this, and I'm going to do the next thing I'm going to do. Right. Eventually, I went, you know, this is a this is a good gig. Um, I like my work. I like my clients. It's challenging. I get to go up to Apple and hang out with those guys here and there and learn about the kind of the newer stuff almost around the corner. And sure, I I like this. And um, so at that point, probably right about when I moved back from New York uh, after a couple of years in Bakersfield, kind of thinking, what am I going to do? That's when I really solidified and. Uh, then I kind of put more eggs in the basket and said, okay, I'm going to commit to this. Sure. Uh, I'm going to build the business out a little stronger, uh, educate more, um, and commit. So I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm going to, I'm going to get you in trouble okay. at this moment. Are you more Steve Jobs or more Wozniak? Whoa. I got to go Jobs. <laughs> I, I, he's just, he, he's got too, too many chops in too many places. Sure, Wozniak was the brain behind the Apple, sure. Apple One and, sure. and some of the tech. But Steve was able to cherry pick three or four items that together synergized into, like, the iPod. Right. You know, the iPod was not finding something that could play audio. It was finding a hard drive that could handle being bumped around, that had the capacity of a certain size, uh, and was physically a certain size. It had the, kind of these three characteristics, and they found it. Um, Ruby, John Rubenstein, he was in China touring a Toshiba plant, and they said, oh, we've got this new little hard drive we're thinking about maybe manufacturing. It's awfully tiny, and it's kind of slow. We don't care about slow. We need to right. stream music. Let me see it. And it was the key to the whole thing. But sure. they were lying in wait, needing this one piece to make the whole rest of the, the gizmo work. And I think if you look at a number of the things Steve did, that's... That was his vantage point. Sure, sure. And one of the things that I really enjoy, I, I read his biography and uh, that was published shortly after he passed away. And one of the things I found remarkable is Steve didn't learn that very important point, that important lesson, until after he was fired by Apple and he went to work for Pixar. Correct. And, when, and that's when the relevation hit because before that he took out the four-page ad in the new york times touting all the great things about lisa and nobody cared well it was a that's the weirdest computer he ever built i still have a hard time getting my head around that one but yeah but you but you you put that up against when he came back to apple and he comes out and he has this little green machine that with the push of a button could do all these things and his whole perspective on how to communicate the technology totally shifted and totally changed. And that, mm-hmm. is, that is what made Apple successful. You know, he's very infamous for saying, you know, when they were developing the iPod, it's got too many buttons. I want one button. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the key, of course. So. Yeah. No, uh, they've always said they were at the intersection of technology and the humanities. Right. Trying to inject some humanism in the technology. And uh, I agree with you. His time away, his time in the wilderness, as they say, when he left Apple, was just huge. 
you know, his next creation, which ended up being repurchased by Apple. Right. We're still using it right, right in front of both of us right now is, is the thing that he built that got repurchased. Um, he learned how to manage people at Pixar. Right. And he learned how to, how to communicate. And, you know, he got a little bit of soul uh, back in him, which I think yeah, he's such a strange character. There are times that he seems so soulful and other times he's just devoid entirely. He's sure, just kind of all absolutely. Over but that's the that's the mark of a genius. They all have mm-hmm. all kinds of great greatness about him, but they usually have a few quirks about him. Yeah, never met him, and I'm kind of glad because he probably would have said something terrible to me, and I would have <laughs> hated him forever. But uh, yeah, no, he's he's a bit of a uh, of a god in our world. Sure, you had spent ten years in in New York City, and mm, uh, just four. Oh, four, just four, four years in New York. Yeah. Okay, and. And in the business world, and some would say, argue that it's also in the artistic world is New York. After all, Frank, Frank Sinatra famously said, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Why did you come back to Bakersfield? That's a great question. I was, it happened right after 9-11, mm-hmm. and I was not too far away from it. Mm-hmm. And that was the first thing that kind of... Uh, it made me want to be near family, as right. as one could understand. Uh, and then they put anthrax in the mail a few weeks later, although I don't think it was real, if I recall. Um, and that was sort of the second one, like, okay, they're really attacking this town. Right. I had a girlfriend at the time, and we were nesting and thought, you know, we, this might be the, the one. And uh, she was keen to move back to my hometown. And it just everything sort of aligned. And within a week's time, we said, yeah, let's pack up and move to back to Bakersfield. And I still in my mind think of what would that trajectory of my life have been if I would would have gotten over that, which was really a pretty momentary feeling. Sure, um, sure. What if I would have pushed through that and stayed? Who knows? But uh, my life now is great. I've got a wife and a six-year-old little bundle of joy who keeps me chasing. And uh, life's good. Coming back to Bakersfield, was it a risk to to open to continue macroscopic or was this something that you had already started parlaying out and you had built a bridge between New York and Bakersfield? No, one of my first big fails was rejiggering the business for Bakersfield. Explain. A few things. Pricing model was very different in New York. Of course, you can charge a lot more. So I knew I had to bring it, bring my pricing down, which that always hurts just to lower the rate. Yeah, but, but the expenses are less. Expenses are quite a bit less. So I, I first had to come up with, with a new kind of rate schedule. But then I needed clients. Right. And this, throughout the years, depending on who you ask at Apple and education, this is a good or bad Apple market. Hmm. And when I started, it was not so hot. So I started doing PC work to try and fill in the gaps. Ooh. And I'm not a great PC guy. I mean, right. I can do the basics, but I, I don't love it. I don't have a passion for it. Right. And so I'm, I wasn't very good at it, mm-hmm. to be honest. And so the work I took doing that was not great work. Right. I had a few successes here and there, but I had a couple failures too. Or I just didn't do a good job. And so I quickly realized that I'm either going to have to go you know, muscle this into my head and find some love for it, or I got to stop doing it. And I stopped doing it. And I said, I'm just going to find a way to boost the Apple presence in this town. I'm going to pitch, the, I'm going to pitch what I know right. to the people that are here, hear me, that will hear me. I used to go to CompUSA and put on an Apple shirt, even though I wasn't employed by them. And i just hang around the Apple section. Because what I noticed when I was there shopping is that someone would go stumble into that section. They'd be redirected to go buy a Windows box. Mm. I'm like, well, that stinks. They wanted to come for a Mac. They should at least hear a story about that before they see the other story. Sure. So I started going in there and just spending an hour every couple of days telling stories. And it worked. I got a handful of clients, and that kind of kicked it, kicked it off a bit where I, you know, that was how I cold called. 
Right. I tried cold calling and that got me nowhere. Sure. Um, I used some of my, you know, family contacts and I got a little work here and there. And um, I should shout out to Kyle Northway. He was one of the people that hired me when he was an advertising manager at Jim Brook Ford for years. And um, he hired me and then would hire me and send me to other people that needed me on his nickel. Like nice. uh, Bakersfield College needed some help and he would help. He was an Apple lover and used to work for them. And he just took an affinity for, for me and, and I him. And he helped me a great deal of kind of uh, introducing me to a lot of potential clients. And that's one of the keys that a lot of new business owners sometimes don't understand is that the key, especially in Bakersfield, is the referral. In any kind of sales, mm -hmm. it's about the referral. If you do a really good job for somebody, they can refer you to somebody else, and then you build and build and grow and expand based off that. And and that is one of the, the, the lessons that sometimes it takes some of us a little while to learn, but is mm -hmm. very key to the development and growth of a business. One of the now, one of the things that I really enjoy about you and the way that you conduct business is that you are a shameless self-promoter without being obnoxious. <laughs> and I wanted to, to, to and I want you to, to, I want you to explain to our, our, our audience how you do that. How do you go about expressing yourself, your, your services, your ability to be the, the top technology expert in your field? here in Bakersfield for Apple products without beating people over the head with it, without coming across as rude, obnoxious, or crass? Well, sales sucks. Mm. So I don't want to be selling, even though we're always selling. We're constantly selling, selling ourselves, selling our product, selling our idea. But it, it never needs to look like that or smell like that. And it's tricky, and I don't do that perfectly on all days. But it all comes down to listening, and that's something I pulled from theater and uh, actor training is that listening to the people that you're talking to, not just waiting to speak. You learn a lot when you listen to people. They'll tell you more than you know. It's your job to listen and mm. believe them. That's mm. what, that's one of the big mistakes we make. We, we don't believe people. Right. Oh, I can never pay my bills on time. Oh, he doesn't mean that. <laughs> and then your bill, you know, he doesn't pay it for 90 days. Oh, he told me he right. wasn't going to pay me. I just didn't hear him. So you, you listen. And, and listening is important in technology because people don't describe things in the same lingo that you're expecting. They're talking about, I need to, gosh, I wish when I went home, I didn't have to get X. Well, that means your mail settings are pushing blank to here. So, all right, we can fix that. But you have to hear them and you have to listen. So I think that would be the, the biggest takeaway is uh, try and infer, um, use empathy. Notice what, if they're hearing you now or if they're sh tuning you out, just stop telling them. Why keep going if they're moving on to some are they busy right now is this a good time to be talking to them about it you know timing your pitches to the exact moment that they need the thing that you're pitching so why pitch if it's not the right time it's kind of a waste so trying to match those up um and i don't i don't really have a plan for how to do that i you know i look at a, at a client and i from maybe early days i think oh gosh they really benefit from a brand new network that sure. extends across their whole business. They bought two or three new buildings on their block and they've strung together a whole bunch of Apple airport extremes, <laughs> maybe seven of them. And every now and then I get a call. Does this sound familiar at all to you? <laughs> maybe every now and then one gets unplugged and three go out and then another two go out. And then... yeah. There's a solution for this. It's not cheap, but I've been waiting for the right day. And I've talked about it once and it was not the right day. Five right. grand sounded awful. Great. Right. Okay. There will be a day right. when five grand will be, oh, please, I would love to give you $5,000 to solve this problem. Yeah, you know, stuff happens. Things, that's the, the cardinal rule. 
uh, in IT is backup, 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 backup. One of the questions that I often ask, and I've got it written down on my on the introduction that I have for my guests, is as a successful business owner, what would you like to educate the listening audience about? And you wrote, failure is mandatory. Persistence is everything. Care to elaborate on that? Yeah, fail fast, fail better, fail as quick as you can, because mm-hmm. you can get up and shake off and do the next thing. Uh, failing slow is miserable to grind out a failure. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's like a band aid. You just want to rip it you off. You got to rip it off. But it's also important to fail. You don't, you don't learn without failing. And, um, I heard a story today, an actor whose name I won't be able to, uh, come up with, uh, was just fired from a, a TV show very publicly. Yeah. You've right. got the pilot and instead of trying to hide from it, he just came straight out and said, I, I failed. And, um, he owned it. And instead of bashing the network and bashing the show, he said, they're going to do great. Whoever they cast in my role, I was an honor to be there. It was just such a magnanimous uh, way to go about it. And um, so it actually got me thinking about that. I may, may have written it before or after um, I filled out your document there, but you got to fail quick. Uh, and after you fail, you got to brush off and you have to go right back at it. And that's the persistence piece. And my dad was big on persistence. That was his thing that he drilled into my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have bad days, you can take a day off, and you can, you can skip them here and there, but you've got to get back up and attack the problem. Uh, playing ostrich and putting your head in the sand gets you nowhere. And I've tried. It does not work. <laughs> it really doesn't. It just makes for lots and lots of uncomfortable sand in your hair if you do that. Well, all the problems are waiting for you. They're just going to be worse. So why, why ignore it? Go straight at it. One of the questions I have for you in, in, in that category is you've got, as a small business owner, you've got lots of things going on. You've got lots of small problems, you've got lots of big problems, you've got a lot of great things going, a lot of good things moving. How do you stay focused on what's important? That's hard because everybody, all my clients, think they're the number one client. Sure. And it's my job to make them feel like that. Right even when five of them need to hush because I've got one that's about to kill us all if I don't solve it. It's really tricky. And I think that's why I'm looking to change the way the model of my business mm-hmm. in the coming years because this is beginning to get untenable as I get more and more customers with more and more disparate types of tech and they have little bumps. They, they do something or a system malfunctions. I can't be in more than one place at one time. Sure. Well, for those of us that survive the recession, right, some of them are calling it the Great Recession because Great Depression is politically incorrect. Right. But those of us that survived are finding ourselves with a tremendous amount of work right now and a tremendous amount of uptick. And you yourself talked are talking a little bit about that. What's what's the, your experience coming out of this recession and how the how the economy is becoming more and more robust? Budgets are open to to make some technology spend expenditures, right. which I, I'm seeing just in my field. Uh, I'm seeing businesses that have grown dramatically. I, I met with some folks about a year ago, and they were considering a project. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and this happens a lot. They thought, you know, we can probably handle this. It's not too tough. Okay, great. We, you know, maybe we'll see you at some point. And a lot of times, they can get the 1.0 of their project done, but. Then it gets complicated, and they call me later, which is awesome. So they called me back in, and I went out to see them last week. And they're like 30 more people than they were 
They started at four, and now they're 34. Right. And this has been a year. It's like, what are you guys doing? This is amazing. Right. And they've systemized, and they've got you know very rigid structure of how they're going to grow and scale, and they're just doing great. And, and what are you doing to grow and scale? Because you're running into this more and more customers, you just said. So I just got back from a conference called ACES, which is a conference for Apple consultants that do exactly what I do, mm-hmm. and how to build a business that is kind of the 2.0 of, of an Apple consulting practice. Most of us started with a break-fix model. Mm-hmm. We were good at fixing Macs or iPhones or what have you, and we started helping out friends and family. Next thing you know, businesses small and then maybe even large businesses. Right. At some point, you get too many clients if you're any good at this. And then when five of them have an emergency on one day and you can only be in one spot, you've just ticked off the other four. Right. So we moved to proactive software that can auto-remediate small problems. Mm-hmm. Basically come up with all these tools that can help do the, the job of more, more people, more hands. That's, that's one element. Sure. Another is staffing up. Problem is in a break-fix model, you never know when people are calling with what broken. Or when. Or when. And maybe no one calls for a month, and then they all call you one week. Right. So how do you staff? Do you hire someone and just let them sit and wait on a you know, $50,000 a year salary? Right. Or do you build contracts with your clients so it normalizes your relationship? There's a monthly fee that is standard regardless of the things that go right or go wrong. That's dangerous to a consultant because if a lot goes wrong because they touch it all day, they can you know, harm you by creating too much work. Right. That's why those software systems have to be there to help prevent you from being uh, attacked. There's, there's so many little pieces to it from a change in accounting uh, to a change in how I capture billing information to adding some staff to this auto remediation software I'm talking about sure. to convincing all my clients to come along with me because I'm suddenly going to go from, hey, guys, you know how you don't see me for three months and you don't pay me a nickel? That's cool, right? But then you pay me three grand in that next right. month because everything went hogwash. What if we did... You know, five hundred bucks a month, and and it covered everything, um, whatever that those those numbers may be. Right. But how can we create a normal relationship where they know what they're paying, I know what I'm getting, and I can staff and create resources to match that in a uh, in a way that is mathematically understandable. And all of this sounds like comes from education and self education. A lot of it. Would you Would you agree? So what are you currently reading right now to keep yourself updated and up to speed on general business practices? So um, I just sat through a, at, at this conference, um, a seminar with one of the gentlemen from Book Yourself Solid, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed uh, some of that material. So I've, I've got that book that is uh, on its way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm, I tend to read not business books as much, and I probably need to start doing a bit more of that as I'm now this next year is really focused on changing into a managed service provider type business approach. Sure. So I probably need to dig in a bit more. I tend to be out in future land when I'm, I'm reading cause that's where I, I get off on science fiction. Um, more science nonfiction. Oh, where is it going? Mm-hmm. What is the, what are humans trying to do to ourselves? Mm. You know, with VR and AR and AI, and there's a book right now called homo deus, deus, mm. homo deus that, uh, uh, Yuval Harari, mm, mm-hmm. and uh, he also wrote a book called Sapiens. Ah, that one I've heard of, yes. Uh, and Sapiens is sort of uh, the beginning of man right. uh, until now-ish, mm-hmm. and Homo Deus is taking off from here, looking at the future. Uh, Deus being God, Homo being humanoid, human gods. It's kind of what we're trying to do as we transcend our body using technology 
and artificial intelligence to move us to some other plane. It seems to be our goal. Sure, sure. Uh, why and how we get there and if we get there and if it's a good idea, I don't know. <laughs> but, but kind of teasing those, those topics is a lot of fun. How do you see the future shifting or changing? So I picked up this little Oculus VR rig. It's the, the thing you strap on your, your mm-hmm. face that gives you, completely obscures your vision. It's a VR, virtual reality headset. Right, right. And I see a lot of technology, and I'm pretty immune to, oh, my God, that's amazing type <laughs> moments. But I had one. It, it is kind of mind-blowing. And this is the, it's called the Oculus Go. It's a $200 almost toy item, and right. it will change your whole view of what VR can mean. Um, and how you can be immersed inside of an environment. Sort of like the movie Ready Player One. I don't know if you you saw that. I have not seen that, but I I do believe they're they're using VR uh, in that film. So it's going to be similar. Uh, I can see rooms of people in headgear, Mm -hmm. and they're in their computer environments inside of them. So my thought goes to how am I going to manage a bunch of these, you know, in a business environment to make sure, because I can't see the screen. It's just a whole new... It's a whole new thing. So I, I think there's something in, in VR that's going to hit the corporate realm when it leaves toys behind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's closer than you think. Sure, sure. And then AI just scares the living poop out of me. Oh, how so? AI is it is potentially exponentially powerful. Mm. By design, by the way an, an artificial intelligence would be, it would have the ability to train itself. And that self-training could catapult it you know, metric you know, 5x beyond human, 10x within seconds or minutes of its creation. Sure. And what it does with that ability is the, the stuff of science fiction, potentially. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's the matrix necessarily that's going to happen. That was on the other night. And apparently it was an AI that, that started that. I'd forgotten that right, tidbit. Right. But I do believe it's dangerous stuff that we just don't have a... We don't have the technology once we set it free, nor do we have the humanity yet to even consider... Um, guiding a thing of, of this power. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long you can go without Googling something. Mm-hmm. I can't go very long at all. Right. Uh, between the watch on my wrist and the phone in my pocket, I am pretty fully connected. And those become an extension of self and brain because I, I leave information outside of my brain because I know I, I can get it. So we're already moving to that level of enhanced. Mm. What sort of lines do we draw to say what is normal enhancement and crazy enhancement? What types of cost will that will that have to enhance yourself to that next level? What sort of societal stratification are we going to have, the haves and have-nots, those that can augment, those that can't? Is that going to become a new social strata? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's fun. And how do you see the customer changing with this advancing technology? Well, let's look at 1984 Apple to 2014 Apple. Uh-huh. I mean, look at how much an individual can do by themselves that they couldn't do before. I mean, you try and go down and buy an Apple II Plus in 84 and you take it home and you've got a weekend project on your hands before you type anything and print anything and do anything. Right. It's going to take a while. Whereas you get a phone from the store, you come home and you are on 15 services and you're sent four messages around the globe and you've called 18 people. I mean, it's dramatically different what what happened. And that was a 30-year spell. Exponentially speaking, we'll make those same leaps in five years, roughly. So I think people like me are eventually going to vanish. I don't mm-hmm. think you're going to see a lot of IT support at, at this level. It's going to change. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm doing a whole different set of stuff than I did 20 years ago. 
And it's much more sitting in front of a web screen controlling all sorts of things from a single pane of glass than walking around manipulating them each by themselves. So we're starting to fleet them. Mm-hmm. And right now we're fleeting things that are homogeneous, like a bunch of routers or a bunch of iPads. We'll start fleeting things that are heterogeneous. And it will all be under one single pane of glass. And you'll hit one button and all the computers and all the devices, and all, they'll all just snap to X, whatever X may be. And it won't take IT people to do it. It'll lay people will be able to, to do this. What do you do to let it go? Let work be work and then be able to spend time with your wife and your daughter. It's tricky because you care about the business and you have 50 clients. You, know, you don't have one boss, which is great, mm-hmm. but you got 50 of them. Right. And you can, all, you can tell one to, you know, pound sand you got 49 more. So, I mean, you can do that. That's always an, always an option. But I prefer not to do that if I can help it, especially right. in a town like Bakersfield. You have to force it. You have to force some, some family time. Um, I like to run, and I try and run in the evenings between my work day and my evening, and that can sometimes kind of break up my mind and, and put me in home space. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved my office home for this year just as sort of an experiment. And mm-hmm. It gives me a little more connection with my daughter as she comes home from school in the middle of the day and Usually will come in and draw with me for 20 minutes if I happen to be in the office, my home office that day. So that actually worked quite well. Some small integrations during the day that would take me out for five minutes here, five minutes there to do a little Barbie time or something. So that, that works. But you're, you're hitting on a really important piece, which is balance. And I, I try and tick the kind of four major boxes every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the professional life, uh, the family life, the self and community. Hmm. And if I can hit those four with, with something, it doesn't have to be a lot every day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it works pretty easy. Uh, there's the phone usually rings every day. Um, self, I tend to try and think of, you know, getting a little bit of reading in, getting a, a run in something either physically or mentally. How far do you myself. run each day? It depends. I'm back in, in real training mode. So I'm trying to do about 25 miles a week. Mm-hmm. So that means anywhere from three to 10 oh. depending on the day. Yeah, I get up in the morning and I run a 5K before I, I go to work because, because it's definitely, you know, you wake up with that heart attack moment in the morning sometimes and uh, it definitely helps lower the stress levels a bit and allows you to clear your mind and, and allow you to get on with your day and, and think about things and clear some Oh, mind. yeah. And by the end of the day, I'm, I've usually had to smile through a number of frustrations uh-huh. and, I, and I stick it at the end because it's sort of a clearing of any angry energy I may have that's you know, misplaced and doesn't need to exist. Let's just try and go burn it out on the track sure, and sure. throw that away. Because uh, there was a time there I got really busy and I brought all that stress right home and uh, no fun to try and have dinner with your wife and toddler and you're not there. You're elsewhere fighting a battle that's never going to be won. So trying to release and let those things go. Um, and that stuff comes right from drama school, honestly. Sure, sure. I mean, the, the weird thing is that everything I did in drama school is 100% applicable to my technology business. Sure. It's so weird. Now, you mentioned you have four boxes that you tick. You you have the professional box, which you tick. You have the personal box that you tick. You have the the family box that you tick. And you have the community box mm-hmm. that you tick. Now, we haven't you haven't spoken about the community box. What do you do to to tick off the community box? Well, I have a pet project that I started a few years back. Um, I, I ran the New York City Marathon when I lived there, mm-hmm. and I love the experience, and I thought that uh, pounding the pavement in another city kind of married me to that city in a way. Sure, I kinda, sure. We, we swapped some blood and tears. 
And I thought, gosh, you know, Bakersfield gets a bad rap. What if we could bring folks here, run them around our town, give them that same experience of connectedness to the city? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you when you design a course, you get to pick where they run, so sure. we can you know sidestep maybe the less attractive areas and show off the landmarks. Uh, and so we created the Bakersfield Marathon, and uh, in 2016 it was our inaugural inaugural year. Took us about three, four years to pull that off just to get the city on board and all the different moving parts. And following uh, year one, we had a successful year two, and we're planning year three right now. So it's a nonprofit. We take all the, the funds that we raise, and we put them into the race. Anything left over goes to the CSUB Roadrunner Scholarship Fund. Excellent. So we've given away 20 grand so far, and I hope to make that a nice big number over time. You're giving back to your alma mater. I am. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful, wide-ranging interview with uh, the great David Malazzo of Macroscopic.net, and you can find him, like I said, at Macroscopic.net. And the one last thing that I'd like to close with this is when I ask what kind of a product or service you'd like to promote during this interview, you said that Macroscopic is, a hyper-fo- is hyper-focused on mobility, deploying end-to-iPhone and iPad solutions for small businesses and enterprise. If you could give us a tidbit about deploying the end-to-end solutions. Yeah, it's easy to go buy 10 iPads at the Apple Store and give them to your employees to do some iPad-based project. We're going to collect data in the field. But before you know it, if you haven't managed these devices, they become playthings. They're watching Netflix. You're paying the data charge for your employees to be at home using it as a hotspot. I mean, all sorts of trouble ensues. So uh, there are management platforms and ways to, uh, to track and restrict these devices to be business tools. And that's becoming a really strong element of my business and of Apple's business. So when I go and spend time with them, uh, they're hyper-focused on uh, us as their consultants out in the world uh, driving these, these technologies forward. And so more and more, I'm uh, not doing necessarily Mac deployments, but it could be you know, 140 iPhones for a trucking company. It's what I'm working on right now. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of a different, different approach to Apple tech, uh, but one that's really fun to watch 140 things snap to attention no matter where they are in the world. It's pretty cool. Sounds like this is a very fun adventure for you. And uh, one of the keys that a lot of business owners know is that it's not necessarily about making money. It's about having a good time and the money will come. Very true. And so I'd like to go ahead and close this interview. Uh, We're here with Dave Malazzo with Macroscopic.net. You can find him at Macroscopic.net. And and when you go ahead and you give David a call, make sure you ask him about Syrah hunting. David, thank you for joining us, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Small Business Celebration Podcast. Some of today's music was brought to you by Ted Hammond, and you may find more of Ted's music at ReverbNation.com forward slash Ted Hammond. And that's ReverbNation.com forward slash Ted Hammond. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and gained some insight from it for your business, subscribe to this podcast at iTunes.com forward slash Small Business Celebration and give us a five-star review. If there is a business in the California San Joaquin Valley you'd like us to interview, reach out to us on Facebook and let us know. Until next time, I am your host, Michael Roberts of the Small Business Celebration Podcast, and we wish you a strong and profitable business.